welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. And most people, you know, can find in their jobs and what they are doing some kind of sense of meaning. But you have to really try. You have to spend some time to think about those things. You know, what could it be? You know, can it be your family or maybe your community involvement? Or, you know, even when we are talking about kindness, which is related to purpose and meaning. In the research, you know, research shows that acts of kindness can lower levels of our stress hormone cortisol and generally, you know, change our gene expression. But the kind acts they are talking about are usually quite small. You know, it doesn't require, you know, some kind kind of huge donating $1 million to charity. You can, for instance, just open doors for someone to let them ahead of you. You can let people ahead of you in traffic. You can pick up trash in your neighborhood. You know, it's just really small things. And yet they make all the difference. And I think it's the same thing with purpose. Of course, it's great if your purpose in life is to save, you know, the world from climate change. Awesome. But, you know, it can also be something small, very small steps. And it's all about shifting your perspective and uh, just thinking about those things in the first place. We've all heard that living with your purpose top of mind, what we call a life of significance, leads to a more joyful and impactful life. But did you know it also can lead to a longer life? Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. On this week's episode, Warwick talks with Marta Zaroska, the best-selling author of Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100, a book steeped in science that points to the health benefits of living life on purpose in service to others. Among the eye-opening facts she uncovers, volunteering lowers your mortality risk by 22%, optimism can prolong your life by almost 10 years, and supplements and fitness trackers aren't likely to do as much for the length and quality of your life as simply living in close-knit community will do for you. Marta, thank you so much for being here. When I read, I think it was a couple of weeks or so ago, the article in the Washington Post that talked about purpose and how having purpose could help uh, increase longevity, I thought, boy, that's it kind of makes sense intuitively, but I haven't really read an article and now a book that actually talks about that from, from a science perspective. So that's fascinating because the crucible leadership were all about helping folks bounce back from their crucibles, setbacks, and failures to lead a life of significance, which we define as a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. So that's right in our wheelhouse, what our listeners will be curious about. So Marta, thank you again so much for being here. Before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about how you became a science writer and sort of the background, because I know I think you're, you're Canadian, living in France, but I believe you were born in Poland. So tell us a little bit about that journey about your background and how you came to be a science writer. I mean, I've been a journalist for over two decades now, so it's been a while. <laughs> uh, I started as a foreign affairs journalist. I was working in Poland um, for several major publications there. I 
Uh, I used to write about some um, things like social issues in Africa. I traveled a lot as well, places in Africa especially. And uh, then as a very young adult, I moved out of Poland. I moved to Canada. And uh, I years later, I also became Canadian. But uh, I started writing in English uh, at some point as well. And um, decided that maybe traveling to Africa and very dangerous places generally wasn't going very well in line with uh, starting a family. So I decided <laughs> to switch to a different type of writing, science writing, although it's kind of connected to my previous work as well, because when I was writing about environmental issues in Africa or some social issues, water shortages, it was also very much based in science already. And I'm also married to a scientist, so it was kind of a natural, <laughs> natural change, of course, for me. And but I've been doing it for uh, for many, many years as well. Right now, so uh, writing, as you've mentioned before, for Scientific American, the Washington Post, especially it's, uh, other publications. <laughs> there is Los Angeles Times, there, you know, etc. That you've mentioned. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry for for all my editors in those newspapers putting them there, but to cover uh, new scientists, uh, etc. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So. Now, did you meet your husband in uh, in Poland or Canada or Poland? I mean, we married crazily young, so yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and speaking of that, you have one or two kids? One, one daughter. Yeah, she's eight. One, one daughter. Okay. I'm sure it's fascinating to see as she as she grows up all of the different tendencies and changes. And so it's one thing to read about people in you know, scientific journals and papers, but then you get to observe a person too. <laughs> and uh, that must be pretty interesting, I imagine. I mean, definitely also, you know, we we are, as I said, we are both Polish-born, naturalized Canadians, and we, we live in France right now, so we are actually raising a French person, which is an additional twist to the whole parenting oh, story. So, so. so what, what led you to move to France? Out of curiosity. I mean, it was my, my husband's PhD, and, uh, and we stayed afterwards. Okay. So I imagine your daughter's probably f obviously fluent, in French, and I guess she probably knows a bit of English and Polish, does she? I mean, she's uh, she's trilingual, so she's absolutely fluent in both French and English with no difference. And uh, her Polish is slightly worse than English and French, but she she also can communicate fluently. I'm sure with the grandparents and all that would be important. So <laughs> that is tremendously impressive. I am barely many days unilingual. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So I want to get into the book a bit, but I think one of the challenges you mentioned was um, coming from Poland. You know, writing for a Polish language journal. It wasn't the easiest thing in the world to get published in papers such as the Washington Post and you know, writing in another language is not the easiest thing, I'm sure, especially when you're writing scientific articles. I mean, I did a bit of French in, uh, in school, and I can probably order a meal or get a room for the night, but there's no way I could talk in French about some scientific subject. That would be way beyond me. So that must not have been easy, I imagine. I mean, the funny part is I cannot write in Polish about science at all. So it's <laughs> interesting to it's here. Uh, but uh, it's extremely difficult for me. But uh, yeah, that's, I mean, switching to English was, was a challenge, a big one, definitely. And, um, and uh, to do so, me and my husband at some point many years ago, we've actually decided to switch 
to speaking English at home, which is something that many people find extremely weird that we are both Polish <laughs> and we speak English at home and our daughter speaks English with us at home. But uh, from both our work's perspective, it was it was vital because uh, we knew we were, we were staying in the West and to be able to write properly in English, I had to think in English and to think in English, I had to speak in English. So that's that's what we've decided to do. And um and yes, breaking in, you know, into the Western market is certainly a challenge. And uh, unfortunately, even the top credits from Poland are, you know, not very much appreciated usually. So it was a lot of, I got a lot of rejection letters before I managed to break into my first publication was Globe and Mail in Canada. And I really appreciate the the, the chance that the, that the editor there in the international section took it, took on me. So, so yeah, that was extremely challenging and it took a lot of uh be, being very, very stubborn and sending my emails and letters over and over and over and over again. I guess I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> so, and then, you know, once you, once you write your first Washington Post article, then suddenly the doors open and things become much, much easier. Well, the, the power of persistence, a very important quality. You know, it's anybody that succeeded. I can't think of anybody that hasn't been persistent. I don't know if persistence adds years to your life, but uh, it should. So <laughs> I'm trying to remember if I read that. I'm not sure. But so talk a bit about what led you to write growing young because i know you've written another book but why this book i mean was there anything that's linked to your background family any sort of reason why this whole growing young concept was fascinating to you i mean it came quite naturally out of my writing because uh, i write mostly about biological sciences so everything concerning health uh, nutrition, psychology, um, and also longevity. So all these kind of topics, I, I, I've been covering them in my articles previously. So there weren't any surprising twists here. Uh, <laughs> and and also, you know, as a in, in my private life, I've been quite interested in longevity and health. Uh, and I think the book started basically, the idea for the book was at first uh, to be a parenting book, actually. So I thought, uh, you know, I, as a mother, I had this kind of wish that my daughter would live healthy and long. And I was thinking, you know, how can I, how can I help her achieve that? How can I assure that she'll live a healthy and long life? So I started gathering data and reading articles and journals and some talking to experts, trying to figure out, you know, what makes people live long. And of course, you know, there was a diet and exercise, but at the same time, I started coming across more and more research uh, showing that this uh, social side of health, so whether we are socially integrated, whether we have purpose in life, meaning, whether we are optimistic, conscientious, all these kind of things matter at least as much for health uh, and longevity as diet and exercise. And when I realized that, you know, I, I, I realized also that there was something much bigger here than just a parenting book, because this applies to everyone, not just for making sure that my daughter lived long and healthy and for our children in general, but also for us parents and the grandparents, for everybody, right? And this was a huge point that uh, seemed to be missing completely from the discussions we were having in the media about what makes people live long and healthy. And this is why I decided to uh, do even more research. And I ended up reading over 600 research papers to write this book. And this is how, how Growing Young came about. You know, it's interesting because as you write in the book, it's easier to measure the effect of diet, exercise, nutrition, probably scientifically than the things you write about, uh, committed relationships, purpose, the social, you know, socialization with friends. I mean, it's probably a little, you know, it feels a little more fuzzy. Maybe it's not as fuzzy, but that's the popular concept. I know there's a couple of things you write in your book, which again, I found absolutely uh, fascinating uh, 
from everything from marriage to relationships to loneliness, so many things. You wrote a couple of things that talked about your purpose in the book. You write one comment that says, I wrote Growing Young out of a belief that in the deluge of reductionist wellness news, we've somehow lost the big picture, ignoring the things that matter the most for our longevity, relationships, emotions, and the psyche. And then instead of another one, you write, uh, my goal in writing this book was to help you fundamentally rethink how you approach your health. Whether you might be putting too much effort into strategies that don't work well, supplements, fitness trackers, and not enough into those that truly matter, your love life, your friendships, your life's meaning. So talk about, you know, and obviously you're not saying the diet and exercise and health are not important. I mean, I'm sure you're reading your book, you obviously, you and your husband and daughter take that all seriously. But talk about how there's almost a fascination and obsession, my words, not yours, with the latest diet, the latest fitness track or the latest treadmill machine. We're just so focused on measuring pounds and calories and body fat, but yet we don't really think too much of some of these other things, such as relationships, emotions, and the so talk about the obsession the world, certainly the Western world has with that versus these other factors that seem to be pretty important. I mean, we certainly are obsessed. When you, when you think about it, you know, half of all American adults take at least one dietary supplement every single day. And uh, the sales of all these kind of fitness trackers are absolutely booming. And um, so I, I believe what's happening are two things. So for one, we find it comforting in a way that measure things. You know, we like to kind of simple solutions. So if you pop this kind of miracle supplement, your telomeres will become longer. You know, if you uh, if you measure your um, HRV rates, uh, you will know exactly how old you are. If you take 10,000 steps exactly per day, uh, then you'll be healthy. So we really like this kind of simple solution. This is what you do, and this is the results you're going to get. But I also think it's fueled by um, marketing and um, sales, basically, of all the companies that are selling us those products. Because, you know, why do we keep hearing about miracle diets and supplements and exercise gadgets so much and so little about the impact of friendship and uh, social inclusion, uh, happiness, purpose on, on health, even though these things have been established in science for a very long time. And I believe the reason is exactly that there, you know, when we are talking about diet and exercise, there are products that, being, that, that are being sold to us. All these supplements, this is a huge billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. The fitness trackers, you know, there is somebody making money on all those things. So they are being advertised, they are being publicized by social inf by influencers on social media. So this is why we hear about all those things. Whereas when you are talking about purpose in life, you know, it's hard to make money. Nobody's making money on you finding meaning in your life. So, mm. so this is why you don't hear about it. You don't see it on, on Instagram because it's just not making money for anybody. Right. Can you imagine? Here's this magic pill. Have this pill for three weeks and you won't be lonely. Have this yeah. other pill and you'll have a happy marriage. You know, it'd be tough to sell that one. Yeah. But I mean, uh, it doesn't exist. <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny, you know, we are in my family somewhat emblematic of what you're talking about. I mean, I'm very blessed. My wife cooks very well and goes to what we you know, health food places like Whole Foods, you know, huge U.S. place. So we eat organic stuff. And yes, I got to confess, we do have the odd supplement. I'll have to ask 
I hope it doesn't have any lead in it, like some of the supplements you mentioned in your book. But yeah, I mean, though I like to think we're also focused on uh, on purpose too. It is interesting. I have to jump in and say, I feel really bad that I said at the outset off air that I'm keeping track of time <laughs> on my Fitbit, so I know so I know how long we're going. So I'm just going to sit over here and not be and not say anything and sort of shrink. Yeah, back. and perhaps not, not look at your Fitbit too much, right? Yes, correct. correct. <laughs> so I mean, I. But what you say is there's so many interesting takes. I mean, I, I want to get to purpose here and uh, ikagai, which I'm sure I'll mispronounce a little a, a little bit because that's purpose is so much of what we talk about here uh, at Crystal Leadership. But there are so many uh, interesting uh, stats you have, and you've got a great chart in there that lists a whole bunch of diet things you can do and exercise, and then everything from relationships to you know uh, having purpose and social networks. But there's one quote that I think you kind of have in there that really sums up everything and compares some key dietary and exercise components with more of the social aspects. So this I find, this whole paragraph I found fascinating. So here's what you wrote. You wrote, here are some stats. Eating six or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day versus zero lowers the risk of mortality by 26%. Sticking to the famed Mediterranean diet means a 20 to 21% lower risk of dying within the next few years. The number for many social factors are much higher. A happy marriage equals a 49% lower mortality risk. Living with someone, just even just a roommate, as opposed to living alone, 90 to 32%. Having a large network of friends, 45%. Other mindset and social indicators have effects similar to that of the super healthy eating style. Volunteering lowers mortality risk by 22%, more or less as much as the following the Mediterranean diet. If you were to add everything together, combining a good marriage, strong friendships, feelings of belonging, and so forth, create a complex measure of social integration, or something that would be called the essence of the Rosetta effect, which is some town in Pennsylvania in the early 60s where people were super close uh, with each other, uh, you would get a whopping 65% reduction in mortality. I mean, that's just staggering. Here's all of these things from Mediterranean, you know, fruit and vegetables. But you compare that with things like, uh, you know, marriage, volunteering, social networks. Yeah, it's not to say you shouldn't do that, but it has as big a, an effect. I mean, that was astounding to me, that those statistics. I mean, it's mind-blowing. I mean, there was also a disclaimer afterwards, and I think it's quite important to mention that. So that these <laughs> numbers are coming from very different studies with very, very varying methodologies. So I don't want people to get hanged up on the number right. is exactly 21% right. and here is exactly 26%. Yeah. It's just about giving a rough idea about how important these things are. But it doesn't mean that you should be com- comparing them exactly because I said they come from different studies. Right. So, But in general, research shows that social integration is at least as important as diet and exercise and perhaps even more important than diet and exercise, even though diet and exercise are, of course, very important for your health and longevity. But these things are maybe even more. So in the perfect scenario, you will be eating healthy and exercising and making sure you are socially integrated, that you are involved in your community, that you you had purpose in life. But you know, but also when we talk about diet and exercise, once again, it's not this kind of obsessive type of diet and exercise when we are searching for all the best miracle foods and diets and eating manuka honey and sprinkled with you know goji berries and so on, popping all the possible telomere enhancing supplements. 
uh, it's kind of simple. It's just, you know, avoiding junk food and too much sugar, eating your fruits and veggies, which can be perfectly fine. Carrots and apples and pears are, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. They are very healthy and good for you. So kind of simple, but still very important. No, absolutely. And, you know, there, um, I mean, I grew up in Australia, but live in the US now. My wife's American. We've lived here about 30 years. There is some comparisons that I found fascinating. You talk about eating at the dinner table together. And in France, I think you mentioned people in 30s and 40s, 61% eat with their families at night compared to 24% of Americans. That that's just makes so much sense. I mean, I'm sort of blessed. We have three kids in their 20s. And because of COVID, they're all living with us. And pretty much every night we do eat together. I mean, that's the way I grew up. In Australia, we always ate together. I mean, once in a while on the weekend, maybe you will watch TV. That sense of just being together as you eat. Maybe, again, uh, Australian culture is different than American. So when I was growing up, I can't ever remember eating food in the car. That was sort of anathema. (laughs) It's just having moved here I had and got married, I had to realize people do do that, which I thought was somewhat barbaric. But and I'm sure anybody in France would agree that eating in the car is barbaric. I don't know about Poland, but certainly the French would certainly believe it's. But yeah, that sense of just, and it often, you know, we'll be talking around the dinner table and time will be getting on. I'll kind of want to, you know, wash the dishes and relax and I'm, and we're still talking. It's like, <laughs> and I'm not that impatient. I like socializing, but it's, it's not a five minute meal. I mean, it's, you know, an hour, hour and a half. I mean, it's every night, you know. So I guess we're unusual, but talk about people don't do that that much, certainly in the in America and maybe Canada too. So there are certain cultural things that have just changed in the last 30, 40 years that are not for the good, don't you think? I mean, certainly, you know, I, I lived in Canada for, for several years, obviously, and uh, and I got used to eating in my car as well and eating while <laughs> walking down the street. And then, then I moved to France. <laughs> And I suddenly discovered that it's a hor- horrible faux pas to eat in your car or walking down the street. You just don't do that. People will be looking at you like you're like a crazy person. So uh, so I, I would never do that right now. And uh, I would, one time I, I was somewhere away for work and I, I actually had to eat a sandwich rushing from one meeting to another <laughs> and that walking down the street. And I felt so horrible doing it. I was actually, I had the sandwich in my in my handbag and I was like sneaking, you know, like a, school in, in, like a kid that's in, in school kind of eating during class. And it's true that, you know, that for the French eating at a table is extremely important, like in all Mediterranean cultures. For instance, you know, my daughter here uh, in the French school, she has a two hour break for lunch. And uh, for at least an hour, they sit uh, at a table and eat. They have, you know, an appetizer, then a second appetizer, then their main dish, then cheese platter and then the dessert. So it's, it's something extremely important for the culture here. And this is what I also write about in Growing Young, that, you know, that we often focus so much on the Mediterranean diet in terms of what kind of nutrients it contains, how much uh, olive oil people are taking in when they're eating a Mediterranean diet, how many grams of tomatoes or, uh, you know, how much wine they are drinking and calculating everything, you know, in this reductionist way, exactly. Uh, Whereas the extremely important part of the Mediterranean diet is actually how they eat. It's not only about what they eat, it's important, but it's not only that, it's also how they eat. And in Spain, in Italy, in France, in those Mediterranean cultures, you eat with other people. 
you eat slow, you take your time, you talk, you know, it, it, this is extremely important. So if you eat the same diet, the Mediterranean diet in your car alone, it won't have the same beneficial effects for your health. So, so you know, this is a huge part that we are missing in North America, I think. Yeah, and you make a very good point. I mean, as a as a, you know, a science writer, you obviously want to understand cause and effect accurately. And so in some of these with blue zones, Sardinia, which, you know, island um, off of Italy, you know, they study, boy, look how, you know, people live long and they're healthy. Well, yes, and they do eat, I'm sure, fruit, vegetables, olive oil, salads, but uh, they probably uh, eat amongst friends. They have social clubs. They help their friends and neighbors. A lot of the things you talk about in this book, they do as part of their culture. And so how do you figure out what's the diet and what's some of the social factors? I mean, it's probably not the easiest thing in the world to isolate. But while it's mm. hard to isolate, you can't discount, you can't say, oh, it's all the Mediterranean diet. I mean, that's a good point. But I mean, I've seen documentaries on, you know, blue zones and they talk about some of these other things, but it seems like the focus is on the diet, not mm. on, on the other. I mean, you know, so for, for instance, you know, a real life experiment was what happens in something you've mentioned earlier on, the Rosetto. So Rosetto mm -hmm. is in Pennsylvania that was uh, actually uh, settled by immigrants from Italy. Uh, and when they came over to Pennsylvania, they uh, actually abandoned their Mediterranean diet very, very fast, unfortunately, and started eating the typical American diet, very greasy diet with lots of sausages and meat, and they drank a lot of alcohol. Uh, a lot of beer and so they were definitely not eating healthy they were also smoking a lot and at the same time this Ros this rosetto became famous because uh, nobody was dying of heart attacks there this attracted attention of scientists and doctors in back in the 1960s uh, it was really set apart from all the surrounding areas even though they had the same health care same water system the similar social profiles horrible diet once again. And yet people were living much longer. I think their mortality rates were like 30% lower, which is huge. And uh, so the doctors started studying that, was the people there, they discovered it's not their genes either. There was nothing in there. Uh, but what was special about this town was that people there brought this exactly Mediterranean culture with them. So they were extremely social. They were constantly visiting. Everybody knew each the, all the neighbors. They were having huge backyard parties where everybody was invited. Where they were taking care of their front yard so the town would look pretty for everybody. They had 22 civic organizations in a tw town of 2,000 people, which was unbelievable. And uh, so, so, this was, so scientists concluded uh, that this was what was making them healthy, and this was named the Rosetto effect. And also what the scientists did, they predicted back then in the 1960s that were the Rosettans ever to abandon their ways and uh, follow the usual American dream, the effects would disappear. And this is unfortunately what, what has happened in uh, what happened in the 80s and 90s when the next generation started to move to the suburbs, work longer hours to be able to afford bigger houses, uh, started driving in their bigger cars, and they stopped visiting. They stopped having these community relationships. They stopped taking part in the civic organizations. And unfortunately, the by now their health just is American average. They're this kind of protective effects. And their amazing cardiovascular health has completely disappeared. Yeah, I mean, that's very instructive. They were eating an unhealthy diet, but yet they were 
living longer, once they abandon that, you know, tight-knit social uh, lifestyle, their health changed. I mean, that would seem to be very determinative. Okay, one other thing before we get to purpose I found fascinating is you talk about committed romantic relationship, which obviously could be marriage, but you sort of differentiate that between cohabiting where there's not a, a lifelong commitment. Have you, obviously marriage, it's in theory, it's clearer, but whether it's marriage or some or some alternative where you've, you, know, you go in there thinking we're doing this for life, the fact that it lowers mortality by 49%, I mean, uh, you know, even with a roommate, I think I read somewhere it's maybe 20% or something. I mean, that's just staggering the effect of a committed long-term relationship such as marriage. So talk about why that makes such a difference. I mean, it's all about, you know, our, it boils down to our sense of security in the most basic form. Because when you think about it, you know, we are social apes. So we evolved to be with our tribe and this is where we feel the safest and this is where our bodies function the best. And uh, our fight or flight response, so for instance, our HPR axis, HPA axis, so hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, this kind of stress response that you know, you activate, for instance, activated back in evolutionary past when you stumbled upon a lion on the savanna, and today active, is activated by anything from your mortgage worries to traffic jams. This functions the best when we are with others. Basically, we feel safe when we are with other people. And we, when you are in a committed relation, relationship like that, exactly the committed part is important because you know that the other person will be there for you for better or for worse. And then all the stress responses can function better because you know there is some support. You are not alone. And so all the biological processes that turn on when we are in when we are stressed, you know, from uh, from different uh, expression of genes related to our uh, inflammation levels, to antiviral response, uh, to cancer progression, all these kind of things function better when we feel safe. Uh, so this is part of it. The other part of it is also, for instance, that we exchange microbes with other people. So we know that we exchange microbes with our friends, with our family, but in particular with our romantic partners because we touch, because we hit. And the more diverse people have their gut microbes, the generally the better their health functions. So there are also other connections. There are social hormones that we have, like oxytocin, serotonin, for instance, that we get get released when we are touching, when we are talking, when we are looking deeply into each other's eyes, when we are getting all these warm feelings of trust and connection, but also that have very downstream, very biological effects in our body. So for instance, oxytocin has anti-inflammatory effects, serotonin has effects on the liver, endorphins are natural painkillers. So you have all these hormones that are at one hand at as kind of the social connection hormones, and on the other hand, have very direct biological effects in our body, including on our gut microbiome. Everything is connected. I'm talking, you know, all this kind of two-way pathways between our brain and gut and all the hormones uh, interacting the best and working the best when we are feeling safe, connected, and that we can trust people around us. And the flip side of what you uh, were talking about and Warwick's question about how committed relationships, friendships, those kind of things help you, help longevity. The chapter, chapter five in your book sort of deals with the negative side of that, right? The, the lack of that. That's called the gnawing parasite of loneliness. Hmm. Explain a little bit about, I mean, we, especially in America, we can uh, hear a lot about feeling lonely and, and there's, there's the connection, quote unquote, that comes from some of our electronic ability to interact with, with one another. But 
studies, I think, have shown that that isn't really connection. What What is the effect of loneliness on what you just described, right? The absence of all of those things. What does that do to us? Yeah, so loneliness is the flip side of it. So you you know, you have all the systems activated. So for instance, we know that people who are lonely, they have shorter telomeres. So those protective cups at your end, end of chromosomes that have uh, take part in aging, they have um, different gene expression when it comes to cancer progression, more negative. They have more inflammation levels. They have worse antiviral response. They even respond worse to vaccinations. So there are lots of things that are happening when we are lonely. And this is already becoming more and more recognized by health authorities around the world. For instance, in the UK, they now have a Ministry for Loneliness because they know that this is costing the, the public healthcare system money and a lot of money at that. There were even some calculations how much exactly there was, you know, I don't remember the figures, but they were very high. Also in Manitoba, in Canada, there is a Ministry for Senior Loneliness. So so they're, they're, they're it's becoming recognized that it's a really big problem for for our health. And it is true that, you know, the online connection doesn't give us the same things, which of course brings us to the pandemic. And a lot of people are asking me these days, you know, are we doomed? Are we going to all live shorter because we are not connecting now? And uh, is it really, really bad for our health? And whereas it's definitely not good for our health to be, you know, separated and not being able to connect in our natural, normal ways with other people. On the other hand, uh, you know, when, when scientists study uh, social inclusion and loneliness, the questions they usually ask people are, are there any people out there on whom you can count on? Is there anybody out there who would bring you soup if you were sick? Is there anybody out there whom you could mm -hmm. call and talk about your problems? And the thing is that, you know, even though we are now isolating, these things haven't disappeared. So if you had friends like that, they can still bring you the Zoop and drop it at your doorstep, right? Even if you cannot meet them in person, you can still pick up the phone and call them. So I don't think this is the same kind of loneliness when that's, that researchers are talking about in research papers, because they are talking about chronic loneliness, so that you really do not have people like that. There is nobody who would bring you, you know, some medis medicines if you were sick. There is nobody who would drive you to the airport. There is nobody who you can call. And this is where, when it's problematic. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. One, one other thing that, a lot of things I found fascinating, you talk about the power of meditation, uh, different religious traditions, different philosophies, such as of yoga, and may, maybe as a way of controlling, regulating emotions, feelings. Uh, you, you, you mentioned an example of somebody that, you know, could have like a root canal, I think it was, and through meditation was able to sort of, you know, deal with the pain, which I find fascinating. And I'm, you know, a person of faith, so I, I think of prayer, at least from my perspective, when I try and relate it to what you talk about and meditation. And it's just fascinating how in different religious traditions, they tell you how to meditate or how to pray. And some of the ways that you do that actually makes some degree of sense. It's like even the so-called, some people analyze in great detail the Lord's Prayer, which anybody in a Christian tradition, you know, like it or not, have to recite. But when you analyze the different aspects of it from almost like a meditative perspective, there are things like focusing on not yourself, but some other higher power, something external. Uh, there's realizing maybe there's some higher power in control. There's a set of, there's focusing, anybody that's serious about prayer will tell you, don't go to God with your laundry list. That is a quote unquote wrong way to pray. 
you know, uh, focus on other praying for other people. So as I read meditation, I could really, and and these, some of these traditions, I could you know translate it in terms of prayer. It was very similar conceptually. So talk about how whether it's prayer, meditation, uh, different religious traditions, how they help you regulate your psyche and some in some ways also add to longevity. What's the relationship between all of that? I mean, so so generally, you know, thinking about exactly something outside of yourself. So this is what I write about in Growing Young as looking outwards, right? Not only mm-hmm. inside yourself, like, you know, what I'm eating, what I'm ingesting, how many steps mm-hmm. I'm taking, I'm just kind of looking how you can be helpful, how you can add something to the community, how you can be kind, how you can be better. And this is all, you know, these are the parts when I write about kindness and empathy and volunteering, for instance, it has huge impact on health, uh, generally caring for other people, also meaning and purpose. It's also about looking outside of yourself at a bigger picture, how you can be helpful. You know, my the last chapter of my book, I write about uh, Japan, mm-hmm. and uh, I traveled there to talk to pe- people, researchers, and and also centenarians about longevity. And uh, one extremely important uh, part of uh, longevity research and longevity conversation in Japan is ikigai, so this um, purpose in life, meaning in life, reason for living. And it's so important for them that even their Ministry of Health, actually, uh, when they are talking about paths to health and Longevity, they actually talk about ikigai as much as they talk about diet and exercise. Um, so it's really recognized as uh, really boosting health. And there is plenty of research showing it lowers your risk, for example, of cardiovascular problems and, and other health problems in general. And ikigai, you know, it's exactly about contributing something to others. Uh, sometimes I ask in interviews uh, in the West, for instance, can golfing be my ikigai? And uh, generally, yes, I've been asked that question. So in general, the answer is unfortunately no. It has to be something outside of yourself, no matter how small. So for instance, the Japanese people I've talked uh, talked with, they told me that their ikigai is taking care of their grandchildren or making sure their front yard looks pretty so the neighbors can enjoy it. This is also why many Japanese people uh, take take on something they call silver hair jobs, uh, this is when they are already post-retirement age, but they decide to take on very simple, easy jobs, usually part-time, uh, not to make money, but to be still involved in something, to be giving back to the community. So they can be public space gardeners, they can be helping children cross on the way to school, they can be doing things like that. And they usually say they do it because of Ikigai, so they feel needed, they feel involved, they feel they're giving back. And this is exactly what's uh, so powerful in uh, in both kindness and finding meaning when it comes to longevity and, and health. I mean, I think it's fascinating what you're saying, Marta, because from a, in Ikigai, the focus is obviously outward focused. It's caring for their neighbors, their grandkids. It's not some internally focused purpose. And I mean, that's when we talk about in crystal leadership, a life of significance which we view as the goal more than success, not that success is wrong. You write about this a bit, I'm sure I read it there somewhere, that from our perspective, significance is a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. Now, what that could be could be very different things, depends on you know, your values, your perspective, what's on your heart. But the fact that it seems like an ikigai, and you visited a number of different places, one, uh, Matsukawa in, in Nagano province, which I guess is where they had the 98 Winter Olympics, which seemed to be like one of the, the hubs 
of this. I think you write that uh, men live uh, long, longest in the whole of Japan, 82.2 years, 10 years longer than some folks in the U.S. So as you as you visited these towns, I mean, talk about what you saw. That it's really it was focused on others, right? It was not so. It's not was not. I'm not against self actualization, but it's like it was other focused. That was really the key to Ikigai, right? It wasn't just uh, making my dreams, my 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 this. It was more the community. Yeah, I mean, generally among, definitely among the older population, because there's another thing, you know, the Japan is changing very fast, right? So right. this is also what researchers are very much worried about, that even though they are now the longest living nation on the planet, this is because of culture and values that they've had in previous generations. But whether in 40, 50 years, Japan still will be such a long-lived nation is another question, is another question because the young people, you know, it's changing very much. So they might like much more consumer cons- consumption oriented. They are much more following Western values. And so this is kind of disappearing. But definitely when you look at the older people, they they do ha- have those beliefs. They really do look outwards. They really care about their community, their uh, how their village or town square looks like, about helping others. They exactly do those silver hair jobs. It's actually very, very common in Japan. This is not some kind of exception for crazy people. This is uh, this is actually <laughs> mainstream. So, um, so, so certainly these kind of values did make them such a long-lived nation. But if they change, then this will no longer continue. And I almost feel like even in the West, uh, some of these things are beginning to creep in. Somebody wrote a book a number of years ago, Half Time, which is sort of the you know the first half of your life, maybe you sort of are successful, and then second half is for significance. I think all of life should be significance, but that's another discussion. But I think more and more, even younger people, they want purpose and meaning. It's like if if there are two jobs, one pays slightly better, 10% better, but you just feel like a small cog in a machine. You don't feel like you're treated well, and there's no purpose or meaning. You probably won't want it. More and more companies are trying to say, like, you know, in America, I can think of some examples like Southwest Airlines, you know, the most successful or probably best run airline, their whole mission was to make travel affordable to connect families. That was their reason for being. So mm. if you join that, it's like, well, that's a purpose in life uh, mm. outside of yourself that you can believe in. Who wouldn't want to make, especially 20 years ago when I mean, airline travel is not cheap, but it was much more expensive in days gone by. Who wouldn't want to help families get together through affordable travel? So some of the smart companies, at least I observe, are drifting towards, because their employees want it, younger people want purpose and meaning. So do you see, I don't know if there's any data on this, but do you see some of that even in the West? Maybe it's not because of living longer, but there's a desire for meaning and purpose in life. And that might be a lot of different things. It's not organized religion or anything, but it's, it's, there is this sense that people yearn for purpose. There's almost a, a growth in that desire. Do you see that at all in the West? I mean, I heard about it. I haven't seen hard data on intergenerational differences. I've definitely seen data on how the pandemic has changed our search for meaning for the better. 
in general, you know, when times are tough, humans start to look for purpose and meaning. And there are several surveys right now showing that uh, many people in the pandemic are looking more for purpose and meaning than they were before. And I think this is a very good change, you know, both from our society's perspective, our mental health perspective, and also from our health and longevity perspective. So it's certainly good news that it's kind of shifting our focus and making us look at those things a little bit more. Because this is a perfect time to inject this bit of information, Marta, that you said in your article in the Washington Post that got Warwick excited to have you on the show. You indicated that according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, four out of 10 Americans haven't yet managed to find purpose mm. in their lives. And I did, just before we hopped on this call, I did a quick survey of four in 10 Americans on Google just to see what else four in 10 Americans have done. And here's the interesting thing. I'm not a big statistics guy. I'm a word guy, not a number guy. But it seems like four in 10 tends to be the figure that's used for things that aren't good, right? So four in 10 Americans, for instance, have no idea how credit scores work. <laughs> Okay. Uh, four in 10 Americans are now obese. That's, that's germane to this conversation. Four in 10 Americans from a study in 2015 breathe polluted air. And then my favorite one, which is not good, is four in 10 Americans said that they would rather give up their dog than give up their phone. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's bad. So that's, I, I, that's terrible. And it and it goes exactly against what we've been talking about. So I, I I bring that to you to say, yes, if people are anecdotally you're hearing people are moving toward more of that, why is it so hard still that 40% are still having a hard time finding that purpose? And what, based on your research, maybe is a tip or two you could give them to 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 help get them in the right direction to find what we would call a life of significance? I mean, it's just spending time on it. I think people just don't put it on their schedule to just sit down without looking at their phones and just think about what's my purpose and meaning. And, you know, it can I believe anybody can find it. It can be found everywhere. Like there was this one fascinating study I've read about hospital workers. And it was actually about the cleaning uh, staff of hospitals. And uh, some of them considered their jobs absolutely horrible. They were like, oh, it's horrible. I'm cleaning toilets. It sucks. You know, it's, it's a bad job. I don't like it. And so on. But there was also a small part of the, those hospital workers who actually said that they love their jobs because they have amazing, they give them amazing sense of meaning. And the reason for that was that they had a different perspective on what they were doing. So they didn't consider themselves as just people who clean toilets. They considered themselves as people who are helping the patients get better and the doctors and the nurses to work better and generally to help the hospital function and bring people back to health. They, they thought that cleaning the floors, you know, this was keeping the germs away, you know, cleaning toilets was making it more pleasant for the, for the patients. So just by shifting the focus, they made exactly the same job, suddenly really good and giving them purpose and meaning. So I really believe that most people, you know, can find in their jobs and what they are doing some kind of sense of meaning, but you have to really try. You have to spend some time to think about those things. You know, what's, what could it be? You know, can it be your family or maybe your community involvement or, you know, anything, you know, even when we're talking about kindness, which is related to purpose and meaning, research shows that 
acts of kindness can lower our uh, levels of our stress hormone cortisol and generally you know, change our gene expression. But the, the kind acts they are talking about are usually quite small. You know, it doesn't require you know, some kind of huge donating $1 million to charity. Uh, you can, for instance, just, uh, you know, open doors for someone to let them ahead of you. You can let people ahead of you in traffic. You can pick up trash in your neighborhood. You know, it's just really small things. And yet they may all make all the difference. And I think it's the same thing with purpose. Of course, it's great if your purpose in life is to save, you know, the world from climate change. Awesome. But, you know, you, it, it can also be something small, very small steps. And uh, and it's all about shifting your perspective and uh, just thinking about those things in the first place. You know, one other related thing on purpose I find fascinating, I think you write in your article and in the book, is when, as we say, you go through crucible experiences, sometimes there can be greater meaning and purpose. You write about World War II that there was a greater sense of purpose, I think, in France than almost at any other time since or something. There's a sense of you know, we're fighting against the Nazi Germany and the resistance and, and all of the many acts of heroism. I think in your article, you talk about Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor that hypothesized that higher purpose gives people a will to stay alive uh, amidst, you know, horrific experiences. Talk about how sometimes, you know, nobody wants to go through crucible experiences, but sometimes our purpose in life or purpose can come amidst very challenging circumstances. Mm. I mean, so I had this other article in uh, the Washington Post. It was about the post-traumatic growth. And uh, this is a phenomenon uh, recognized in psychology. There's something that comes after, sometimes comes after post-traumatic stress disorder, which of course is a very bad thing to happen to you when you have this kind of traumatic experience. But for a certain percentage of people, science, the research is still uncertain for how many, it depends on various factors, uh, they can actually experience growth. Uh, so they consider themselves as stronger and uh, more connected to other people and generally better off than they would otherwise have been if this traumatic event has not happened to them. Uh, which is absolutely fascinating. And this research has been done, you know, on, on war prisoners, on victims of hurricanes, on earthquakes, and really people who went through traumatic experiences. And yet, if they manage to, especially if they manage to talk through it with other people, if they manage to find exactly purpose and meaning perhaps in the experience, they can emerge even stronger than they would otherwise have been. Which for me, you know, it, it really gives uh, gives me hope, and that's uh, you know nothing. Even if something really really bad happens, there can be still something positive, perhaps coming out of it. And you know, especially now that we are living this pandemic, and we know from previous studies on 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 the first SARS epidemic that a lot of healthcare workers and people who are hospitalized they experienced PTSD. But there are also emerging studies showing that there were also people experiences this post traumatic growth after. The SARS pandemic. So, so there are potentially some some silver linings here. Yeah, I mean, as we kind of sum up, you know, what fascinated me about your book and the article was just we talk a lot to our listeners about how you bounce back from crucibles. It could be your fault or not your fault, failure, setbacks, and you know, as Gary always says at the end of the podcast, crucibles don't have to be the end of your story. They can be uh, the beginning of an exciting new chapter. And what I like about what you write in your book is you provide really a roadmap in a sense. I mean, it's not necessarily your purpose, but you you write a, a, a roadmap 
of how to recover from crucible experiences just by following the data, by obviously finding purpose. And as you find purpose, you want to do it in, in community because you're going to need support. You don't want to be alone. Thinking of others, kindness, empathy, meditation, prayer, you know, uh, different ways to get internally centered. These are all things to get beyond crucibles and live a fulfilling, satisfying life. I mean, pretty much every chapter has an aspect, committed relationships that really help you live a, not just a long life, but a contented, joyful life if you follow these things, which again, may not have been your purpose, but it, it does provide a roadmap for getting beyond crucibles and leading a joy-filled life. I mean, it probably partly was your purpose too, but does that make some kind of sense, you know? I mean, totally. Uh, you know, this is why I also called the book Growing Young. It was not about becoming right. younger in a way that, you know, you get less wrinkles. It was it was about growing <laughs> as a person, right? Mm -hmm. So you grow as a person. And if you grow as a person, you also stay young or younger. You stay in better health, right? So uh, so that was this extremely important aspect for me. And uh, that I also find extremely rewarding in a way that, you know, if we improve, if we become better, if we become kinder, more socially connected, find meaning, uh, give back to the community, become more optimistic that we can actually also improve our health, both mental and physical. Now, that sound that you heard, listener, was the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign and we're coming to the place where we need to land the plane. As that happens, I, I'm duty bound to tell you, do not turn your phones on. <laughs> not only because the the flight attendants say not to, but because as Marta's been talking about, spending too much time in your phones can be bad for your sense of purpose, for your longevity. Marta, I would be remiss if I did not give you the opportunity as we uh, begin to wrap up here to uh, let listeners know how they can find out more about your book and find out more about you. I mean, so you can find it in all the usual book selling places from Amazon to all the small booksellers. And uh, you can also find it on my website, which is www.growingyoungthebook.com. And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at, uh, at mzaraska, so M-Z-A-R-A-S-K-A. Excellent. Warwick, do you have a, a final thought, a final question before we wrap? Yeah. I mean, Marta, again, thanks so much for being here. You know, when I first read that article about purpose can help you live a longer life and then read the book, everything resonated. Having purpose defined as thinking of others, it could be a big purpose, climate change, as you put it, but it could be just helping your neighborhood, like the folks in Japan, just cleaning the sidewalks outside of their house, not just so much just for them, but just to make the whole street look better. I think of, uh, you know, you go to these Swiss villages and my gosh, every every little house has some geraniums or flowers outside. I mean, every single one is just staggering and the sidewalks also look spotless. So I don't know, maybe they have a similar concept, but yeah, just the sense of caring for others, of optimism, committed relationships, uh, community, internal centering mechanisms, whether it's meditation or prayer, they will help you live longer, have more purpose and have more joy. So I just, the fact that there's some data behind doing things that seem to me to be common sense, and that actually says you will live longer and and live healthier. I mean, I just found it very affirming and very encouraging. And I hope people will really pay attention to what you've said in your book and not ditch diet and exercise, but you're not talking about that. It's just do what you need to do to be healthy, but don't overly obsess about the latest supplement or the latest fad, and don't ignore the social side, the purpose side, 
you, you can do both. You do both. You might actually be healthier, more joyful in all ways. I think your book is really has a, such an important message. It's really a clarion call for people to, you know, don't ignore the the social uh, side. So it was it's really uh, it's very affirming, very challenging. Thank you. Well, listener, that sound you heard was the landing gear landing on the tarmac. We have wrapped this episode of Beyond the Crucible. Here again is Growing Young, Marta Zoroska's book. So please get it. It's a fascinating read. It's one of those that the people in your household get sort of upset with you with because you open it up and you can't put it down. And they're like, come to dinner. Wait a minute. I have to read more. There's still more to come. So, But one of the things that it, that it points out before I summarize uh, some takeaways here, one of the things I think it points out, if I had to summarize it, and I wrote this on my notes, is that doing the things in this book finding your purpose and applying your purpose and living your purpose, make the world a better place and let you enjoy it longer. And those are two great things to put together. You're improving your environment, you're improving your world, and you're improving your life in terms of you can live uh, longer. And to that end, listener, here are some, some takeaways. And I'm going to, for the takeaways, I'm going to use the statistics and I'm going to, I'm going to preface some of these statistics with Marta's explanation that these are not set in cement. These are from different studies with different, you know, methodologies. And so don't take the statistics so much to heart as you would the arrow that they point toward, that this, these are good statistics. They're not, you know, walking around quoting them verbatim, may not, because they're not all universal. But from this book, I have pulled three tips. One is volunteering lowers your risk of death by 22%. That is a, uh, a fascinating statistic. And again, don't get hung up on the number. Get hung up on the arrow. Volunteering can make your life longer and better. And the benefit of that, if you volunteer to help someone who's lonely, that helps their life as well. The second thing is improving close relationships has a 45%. Again, don't get hung up on the number. It has a great impact on your longevity, by improving close relationships, having those people that Marta described who will call you up when you're sick and bring you soup or bring you medicine, those kind of people, even in the situation we're in now with the pandemic, you can still have close relationships and you can still work on those things. And then the one that, that I ended uh, our conversation with, the statistic is, is, is a bit stark, but it's not, it's one of those statistics we can change. 40% in the U.S., haven't found their purpose yet. Here's the good news about that. We can change it. You can put down your phone. You can unplug your video game. You can watch this if you're on YouTube. If you're not, I'm going to describe for you what I'm doing. I am taking off my fitness tracker. You can take off your fitness tracker and not be obsessed about it. If you do those things, then you think about it and take, as Warwick often has said, when you think about your purpose, you think about your purpose and you can take, as Warwick often says, one small step toward it. What that small step is, is going to vary for everybody listening to this conversation. But that's how you find your purpose. Think about it and then act on it. Take one small step to find out what that might be that aligns with your values and your uh, talents and then go pursue it. So, listener, until the next time that we're together here on Beyond the Crucible, thank you for spending time with us in this uh, truly enlightening conversation with Marta Zaraska. If you would do a favor for, uh, for Warwick and I, click subscribe to the podcast app on which you're listening to this show right now. That helps us reach more people with these kinds of conversations, which are, are eye-opening 
and hopefully experience opening for you as it, it, it leads you down the road to pursue that life of purpose. And until we are together the next time, remember this, that your crucible experience is painful and it's real and we know that. We've been through those things, but it does not have to be the end of your story. In fact, it will not be the end of your story if you learn the lessons of that crucible, if you apply the lessons of that crucible to your life as you move forward. The reason it's not the end of your story, the reason it's the beginning of a new chapter in your story, and the most rewarding chapter of your story is that that new chapter, that new experience, those lessons you've learned applied to your life as you go forward can lead you to a life of significance. Mm -hmm.